Good morning. All right, again, ohayou gozaimasu, uh, Welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. As always, it's great to be here with you guys. Um, and I am just looking forward to all that God has in store for us today. Um, lots of things going on today, but today in the next you know, 45 minutes, uh, we'll focus upon what God's doing here. Well, let's go ahead and uh, dismiss our elementary-age children to their Sunday school class, as well as the Bible English class. We'll uh, dismiss them as well. And uh, for the rest of us, we're going to look to wrap up our study of the book of 2 Thessalonians this morning by covering the third and final chapter. Uh, if you recall, Paul wrote this letter for three primary reasons, right? One was to encourage the church. Okay, the church was facing all sorts of persecution and opposition, and so Paul wanted to encourage them in their newfound faith. And, and this encouragement is really sprinkled throughout the letter, but primarily we see its focus in chapter 1. Uh, then two, okay, Paul wrote to explain a few things in more detail regarding the coming of the Lord, uh, the day of the Lord, uh, a time of, of God's wrath and judgment. Uh, the church had some people falsely claiming that they were living in the day of the Lord. And so Paul wrote to refute those claims and to explain how the church could be certain that they were not, in fact, living in, nor were they experiencing the day of the Lord. Uh, the persecution that they were experiencing was not God's wrath, but rather it was the attacks of the enemy, the evil one. And so Paul wrote to clarify, to explain these things to the church in chapter 2 of the letter. And then 3, Paul wrote to exhort the church and some of the members that were behaving disorderly. And that's what we're going to cover today in our study of chapter 3. And so the three main reasons Paul wrote had to do with encouragement, explanation, and exhortation. Okay? And our text this morning is going to be the entirety of chapter 3, dealing with Paul's final exhortations to the church. For those of you who like to take notes or outline our text, that's going to be the title of our study this morning, Paul's final exhortations, okay, Paul's final exhortations. If you haven't done so already, I'd like you to open your Bible, make your way to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and then once you are there, I'd like to ask you to rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and His holy word. I'm going to read through our text from uh, my Bible. I, I am reading from the New King James Version, and so if you're reading from a different translation, just do your best to follow along in your own Bible. So Paul wraps up his second letter to the church in Thessalonica with the following in verse 1 of chapter 3. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of the, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Verse 16, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle. So I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning and the opportunity that we have to open up your word and allow your word to speak to us. 
Holy Spirit, we ask that you would lead us and guide us in all truth. Lord, that we would know and understand uh, what you were saying to the church in Thessalonica, but what you're saying to the church here in Iwakuni as well, what you're saying to us uh, individually, Lord. And so uh, give us ears to hear what your Spirit is speaking to us through your Holy Word. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. So this morning, we're going to be dividing our text into four sections as we cover Paul's final exhortations to the church in Thessalonica. In each section, we'll note a few different things that Paul was directing the church in Thessalonica towards, and and we'll see how it applies to us today as a church. Now, our first section, it's found in verses 1 and 2, and it involves Paul's call, okay, Paul's call. Take a look at our opening verses once again with me. Verses 1 and 2 says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. Now, some of you guys may recall how at the end of chapter 2 last week, Paul offered up a prayer for the church in Thessalonica. He prayed, uh, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And then here in the opening of chapter 3, Paul calls upon the church in Thessalonica to pray for him and his ministry partners. Paul knew and understood the importance of prayer, the need for prayer, the power that comes through prayer. Paul was never too big or too proud to ask for prayer. He often requested in his letter that the churches pray for him. He did so here in his writing to the Thessalonians. He did so with the church in Ephesus, the church in Rome, the church in Corinth, the church in Philippi, and the church in Colossae. Okay? Paul planted nearly all of these churches, and they were filled with a bunch of new believers, Hey, people, you know, still trying to figure out what it meant to even be a Christian and what it meant to pray to the one true God. But that didn't keep him from asking them to pray for him and the work God was doing in and through him. Even though he was a leader of these churches, he knew and he understood the need for them to be praying for him. You guys, if Paul the Apostle, okay, or as a Chaplain Owen used to always say, this is the Paul the A apostle, not the B apostle. This is top of the line, right? This is, this is the apostle Paul, right? If Paul the apostle, the man God hand-selected on the road to Damascus, the man God used to work all sorts of signs and wonders, including healing the lame, casting out demons, even raising the dead, The man that God used to pen nearly half of the books that are found in our New Testament, if this man felt the need for prayer, how much more should we feel that same need? Right? We need to be praying for one another. Okay, we need to humble ourselves and and let down our guard enough so that we can be vulnerable with other people and let people know what we need prayer for. Because there's power in prayer. There is power released as we lift our needs and the needs of those around us. As we worship the Lord and we acknowledge His hand at work in us and in the lives of those we intercede for, power is released from on high. And so I would ask that you would be praying for me. And I would ask that you would do it, very selfishly, on a regular basis, please. God knows and I know that I need it, okay? Prayer is what will keep this ministry going, okay? And so pray. Pray that I may lead this flock well, okay? That, that I may faithfully present God's word and love and feed and care for you all, okay? And, and I know and I, okay, I cannot do it without your prayers and with your, without your support. And so pray for me, please, okay? And pray for one another. Well, Paul called upon the church in Thessalonica to pray for him. 
And he asked specifically for two things, okay, in his prayer. Uh, Note them with me. First of all, Paul asked the church to pray that God's word would go forth freely, that it would spread rapidly, and that it would be glorified and honored amongst those that hear it. That's the meaning here when Paul asked for the word of the Lord to uh, run swiftly and, and be glorified. Paul wanted to see God's word move forward without any hindrance. He wanted to see God's word honored and glorified in the lives of those who heard it. This is what had happened there in Thessalonica. God's word went forth okay, in great power through Paul and his companions, and it did an incredible work in and through the people there. Paul knew there was power in God's word, power to change people's lives, power to save people. Paul said that the gospel message that he preached, it was the power of God to salvation, right? And we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, according to Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Paul knew the promises that were in God's word. He knew what Isaiah had to say about God's word, how it would not return to God void, but that it would accomplish what God pleased and it would prosper in the thing for which God sent it. You see, Paul wanted to see God's word go out without any hindrance whatsoever, to spread across the lives of people everywhere, that God and his word would be glorified in our lives. The second thing Paul asked them to pray for was deliverance. Deliverance from unreasonable and and wicked men who did not have faith. And you guys, these prayers are connected. For as the gospel goes out, there are those who will stand in the way of the gospel. There are enemies of the gospel, those who are unreasonable, who are wicked in their ways. They will not listen to God's word. They cannot be reasoned with, and they will oppose God's word at any chance they get. I'm sure that you've come across people like this before. They don't want to have anything to do with the Bible, and they will oppose the spread of God's word, and they will make claims against God's word, saying, well, you know, the Bible has contradictions in it, and and the Bible can't be trusted, and, and, you know, the Bible, it fosters hate, and, and the Bible, you know, it's outdated, right? And they will make all sorts of other false claims regarding God's word. Paul was facing some people like this while in the city of Corinth, people who were actively trying to oppose the spread of God's word. And so he asked the church in Thessalonica, pray, pray that they would be delivered from these kinds of people. As we consider Paul's call for prayer for the Thessalonians in relation to God's word going forth in power and without hindrance, I think the application for us is quite simple, that we too would pray similarly. We need to be praying for God's word to go forth in power, that it would spread rapidly and that it would be honored and glorified among the people who hear it, that those who have received it will in turn share it with others, that God's word would continue to go forth and continue to impact people for all of eternity. And so pray for me as I share God's word, but also you guys Look for opportunities to share God's word yourself. Be bold. Share God's word with those around you. Share God's gospel message and watch God's power go forth and change lives all to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, I said we would divide our text into four sections. The first section dealt with Paul's call. Uh, It was a call to prayer. The next section deals with Paul's confidence. It's in verses 3 through 5. Read them with me. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ." Here in these three verses, we see that Paul follows up his call to prayer with three things that he is confident of. Number one, Paul is confident in God's faithfulness, okay, in God's faithfulness. While Paul and his companions may encounter people who are unreasonable, wicked, and uh, faithless, he has the utmost confidence in God and his faithfulness. They're going to come against and to come across those who are without faith. But he is confident in God's faithfulness. God is faithful. You and I, 
we're not so faithful, okay? Let's just be honest and, and real, okay? We cannot be counted upon all the time, okay? Even though we may try our hardest to be in and of ourselves, we always fall short. But God never will. He is forever faithful. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can count on him to always be there, to always see us through, even the most difficult of circumstances. No matter what comes our way, God will be faithful, not only to get us through it, but he will be faithful to use it for his glory and our own growth and maturity in him. Even when we are faithless and we blow it, and we will, okay? Even when that happens, God will still remain faithful. You see, he, his faithfulness is not based upon our faithfulness. God is not faithful to us because we are faithful to him. God is faithful to us because it's based upon his character. It's based upon who he is. God is faithful. The scriptures tell us this very truth. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes, if we are faithless, okay, and that if is written in the first class conditional, meaning since we are faithless, it's assumed to be true by the author's perspective, since we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And so Paul was confident in God's faithfulness. But we see here in our text that he was confident of God's faithfulness to do two things. Paul was confident that God would be faithful to establish the church in Thessalonica. The word establish, it's the same Greek, that we, Greek word that we looked at last week, the word sterizo, where we get our English word steroids from. The idea here is that Paul was confident God would strengthen this church. That's how a lot of the more modern translations put it here in this verse, that God will strengthen them. If you're reading from the NIV, the ESV, NASB, okay, uh, a lot of those different translations, they all read that way. God will strengthen them. The power needed to do that which God calls us to is provided by God himself. He is faithful to empower us for the things that he calls us to. God will never call you into something that he will not also empower you to do. He is faithful that way. Paul was also confident that God would be faithful to guard them from the evil one. This is a reference to Satan himself. Satan, according to 1 Peter, he roams around like a roaring lion, lion excuse me, seeking whom he may devour, uh, 1 Peter 5.8. In Ephesians, Paul exhorts the, church not to, or exhorts the church to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Well, we're going to be learning more about that uh, this week during VBS. Later on in that same chapter, Paul describes how the wicked one, Satan, shoots his fiery darts at us trying to take us down and how we need the shield of faith to quench those fiery darts that he hurls at us. Though Satan comes against us, we need not fear, for God will be faithful to guard us against the attacks of the enemy. Now, I need you to understand, this does not mean that we won't ever experience trials or difficulties or persecution or tribulations. The devil and his minions will seek to oppress us and come against us, but they will never triumph over us. Satan fights a losing battle. The victory has already been won through Jesus Christ. He defeated the devil, and he grants to us the victory that he won upon the cross of Calvary. Paul was confident that God would be faithful to protect and guard these believers from the enemy. Back to our text. I said that Paul was confident of three things. The first was God's faithfulness. The second thing was God's work in them. Okay, God's work in them. Paul was confident in the Lord concerning the church in Thessalonica and their ability to do and to keep on doing all the things that Paul and his companions had commanded them. And this is very important you guys note this. Paul was not placing his confidence in them. Okay? But rather he was placing his confidence in God to enable them to do and to keep on doing the things that he commanded them to do through Paul and his companions. 
Philippians tells us that it is God who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God is the one doing the work in us. It is he uh, that does everything, okay? It is his will that we do these things. And as the, you know, the old catchphrase goes, when it's God's will, it's God's bill, okay? God will provide. He will be the one that does the work, and he will continue to do that work in us until the day he calls us home to be with him forever. Paul tells us again in Philippians that we can be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul was confident in the present work of God in the church in Thessalonica, and he was confident in the future work of God in and through the church in Thessalonica. And God will complete the work he began in us as well church family, okay? we can have the same confidence that Paul had in God towards those in Thessalonica for their lives. We can have that same confidence for ourselves, that God will do that work in us, okay? that he is doing it and that he will continue to do it. The third thing Paul was confident in was God's ability to direct their hearts and his ability to lead them. Paul knew God would lead them and direct their hearts into two things. First of all, Paul was confident in God's ability to lead them into his love. This is that agape love of God, the unconditional, limitless love of God. This is the kind of love that we need, and God is able to lead and direct our hearts into this kind of love. And and how desperately we need this kind of love, okay? We need this kind of love for the Lord, and we need this kind of love for one another. We need God's love to be working in our hearts and lives more and more each day. For without it, we are nothing. Without it, okay, all that we do is nothing more than a waste of time. Okay, without God's love leading and guiding our hearts, all of our efforts, all of our you know, religious efforts or all of our good deeds, okay, they amount to nothing if they are not done in God's love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 teaches us this. There Paul writes, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clinging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Without God's love leading the way, All we do is nothing more than sounding brass and clanging cymbals. It amounts to nothing, and it profits us nothing. We have to have this kind of love. And God is the one who will give us this kind of love. He is the one who demonstrated this kind of love for us in sending his son to die on the cross for us. And because he loves us, we in turn can love others with his love. The scriptures attest we love because he first loved us. And so Paul was confident in God's ability to lead their hearts in love. And the second thing Paul was confident God would be able to lead their hearts into was the patience of Christ. The word patience is an important one to understand here. It is the word hupomone, and it specifically deals with the ability to bear up under and to endure things and circumstances. You see, there's a different word, a different Greek word that's used to speak about the ability to have endurance towards people. It's usually translated in English as long-suffering. God is long-suffering towards us, but that isn't the word being used here. This is speaking about the ability not to endure people, but to endure situations and circumstances. To have patience, okay, hupomeno, uh, refers to, and I'll just simply quote from my lexicon, um, it says, it is the quality of character which does not allow one to surrender to circumstances or succumb under trial, 
Okay, I'll read it again. The quality of character which does not allow one to surrender to circumstances or succumb under trial. Jesus demonstrated his patience when he went to the cross for us and he did not give up. He did not surrender to the cries of his flesh, but he endured the pain and the shame of the cross. Okay, but we must know and understand, you guys, Jesus could have come down from the cross at any moment. He could have spoken a word and it would have all been done and over with. But he did not succumb under trial. He persevered. He patiently endured. Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and now has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We, you and I, were part of the joy that was set before him knowing that his victory would pave a way for us to be reconciled to the Lord, to be made righteous before the Lord. He did it for us. And Paul was confident that God would be able to lead our hearts into that kind of patience, the ability not to give up under trials and hardships. The church of Thessalonica was going through a lot of persecution, a lot of trials, a lot of heartache, but Paul was confident that they would not give up, that they would not succumb to the trials. He was confident that God would lead them into the patience of Christ, that he would lead them into the ability to endure hardship and not give up uh, and to do so for the joy that's set before us, eternity with the Lord in heaven where all of our pains and sorrows and trials will be wiped away and we will behold the beauty and the splendor of our Lord and his majesty. Okay? And all the trials, all the pain, all the difficulties that we've experienced, they will fade way, 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 way away into the background as we worship the Lord. It will be a glorious day. And so Paul was confident in God's ability to lead their hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. And you guys, we can be confident of the same work in us. God will lead and guide us and our hearts as well if we want him to, if we trust him to. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 reads, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. God will lead us into his love and into this patience of Christ as we submit our ways to him and we trust his word and his will for our lives. Back to our text. Take a look at our next section dealing with Paul's commands in verses 6 all the way through 15. Here Paul brings up the main portion of his exhortations for the chapter. And as we go through this section, we're going to note four different commands Paul had for the church. And we're going to note them bit by bit, so we won't take in the whole text all at once. Start off, take a look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Drop down to verse 14 and 15. It says, And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. First off, Paul commands those in the church to withdraw themselves from those who are being disorderly. Now, there is a process to this withdrawing, and Paul further details it in verses 14 and 15, and that's kind of why we went from 6 all the way to 14 and 15. We'll come back to those other verses, okay? I'm not uh, ditching those. We'll get to them, okay? This command pertains to those who are brothers or sisters okay? in the faith. We could simply say believers as opposed to non-believers or unbelievers. Also, we're talking about believers who walk disorderly. The word walk is important to note. It's used figuratively here to refer to the way in which a person lives their life. It refers to the way in which one regulates their life. We're not talking about someone who, you know, slips up and or has a, you know, a sudden lapse in judgment and stumbles into sin, but rather someone who has made it a point to live their life a certain way. That's their walk is this way. And that Way or, or manner is described as disorderly here by Paul. This word too is important to know. 
The word is more commonly associated with the military. It's used to describe soldiers who are out of rank, who are deviating from the prescribed order or code. In this context, it's referring to those who are acting contrary to the tradition or doctrine which was sent via Paul and his companions. And specifically, it's talking about those who are not working and providing for themselves. Paul had already addressed this issue prior to this writing when he wrote his first letter to the Thessalonians. He wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. That word unruly is the Greek adjective form of the adverb that's translated as disorderly in our text. He also exhorted them to aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind their own business, to work, their own, work with their own hands, as we commanded you that you may walk properly. And so not only had Paul already written to them about this, this was also something that he had commanded them when he was with them in person in the city of Thessalonica. And so we see a pattern here of how things have progressed. Paul first shared the command, the, the expectation for how they were to live a certain way, to walk a certain way. And he did this when he was with them in the city of Thessalonica. Later on, when he got word that some were not following his command, he wrote to the church and encouraged them first to warn those who were being unruly in the book 1 Thessalonians. He wrote that. And then here it is a few months later, and he gets word that there are still the same issues. And so now he raises the stakes. In verse 14, he speaks of those who will not obey Paul's word in this epistle. And he commands the others to note them and to not keep company with them. And so there was first a command given, a clear statement of expected behavior. Then there was a warning given in Paul's first letter, and then another exhortation and warning given here in the second letter. And if they don't listen after the second warning, then the church is then to withdraw from that person and not keep company with them. And this coincides with what Paul wrote to Titus about those who are divisive. He said to reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, or the first and second warning. And so the church was to withdraw from not keep company with or mingle with is the idea here. Those who continued to act this way after they had been warned twice about their behavior of being disorderly. You see, in this context, as we'll note later in our study, the main culprits were those who were not working and were living off the generosity and support of the rest of the church. Not only were they not working, but with all of their free time, they were meddling in the affairs and lives of the rest of those in the church. They were being busybodies, running around, getting all up in everyone else's business, but not doing anything for themselves. The remedy against a busybody and a gossip that often, uh, the gossip that also often follows after a busybody is to not give them an audience in the first place. If they can't busy themselves with the affairs of everyone else, eventually the hope would be that they get bored of not doing anything and they start to become a more productive member uh, within the church, within society. And so Paul commands the church to not give these people an audience, to withdraw from them, to not keep company with them. And it's also very important to note the purpose behind this disassociation with the brother or sister in Christ. It was so that they would feel ashamed of their actions and turn from them. The heart behind any sort of discipline should always be reconciliation and restoration. We are not to count them as if they were an enemy or an unbeliever. They are still our brother or sister in Christ, and we are still called to love them as such. And God loves us, and part of his love for us comes in the form of discipline. Hebrews reads, my son, do not despise the chastening or discipline of the Lord, be, uh, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. You see, loving someone in a godly manner means sometimes having to admonish them. It means sometimes having to lovingly correct them and tell them that their behavior needs to change. And then it doesn't, and if it doesn't, 
then you're simply not going to be able to continue keeping company with them. And that is really hard to do. Where is that line between loving people, serving people, being a blessing to them, and, and hindering them or enabling them to continue in sin? It could be hard to determine, and I believe it's a matter between you and the Lord. And we need to let the Spirit of God within us lead us and guide us in those matters. There will come a time when our helping people really isn't helping them any longer. And it's merely enabling them to continue acting in a disorderly manner. And when that time comes, we must be faithful to follow Paul's command here. To cut them off, basically, and admonish them towards repentance. That they would get right with the Lord. Back to our text. Take a look at Paul's next command in verses 7 through 9. He says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. Here Paul commands the church in Thessalonica to follow the example that he and his companions had left for them. When Paul, Silas, and Timothy were there in Thessalonica, they did not act disorderly. They did not eat anyone's bread free of charge. They weren't mooching off of others. They worked diligently, providing for themselves that they may not be a burden to any of them. And interestingly enough, as apostles and ministers of the gospel, there was a certain expectation that they would receive from the church for their services. As apostles, they had the authority to expect the support from the church, but Paul chose not to exercise that authority while in Thessalonica. This wasn't something Paul always did. He did receive support at different times from different churches, but for the sake of the Thessalonians, he decided against it. I imagine that Paul probably noticed a certain mindset and he simply read the environment there in Thessalonica, allowing God's spirit to lead him and whether or not to look for support. And based upon his desire to be an example to those in Thessalonica, well, he felt the need for him and his companions not to receive any support from them and instead to work and provide for their own means. Maybe it was something he noticed while in Thessalonica. Perhaps there wasn't a very strong work ethic displayed amongst the people, and so Paul felt the need to live his life as an example of how to work hard, how to earn his fair keep. It was very common back in that day. The Greeks despised manual labor. They thought it was work that was meant for slaves alone, and they would try to get out of it as much as possible. The Jews, on the other hand, thought that everyone should be trained in at least one particular trade or craft so that no matter what happened in life, they'd always have a skill or trait that could be useful towards earning a living. Earning a living excuse me. As a Hebrew, as a Jew, Paul had been trained as a tent maker, and he would use that skill to help support himself in the ministry from time to time. He would go and, and repair tents and make tents, and uh, that's what he did for a job. Seeing as how the Thessalonians um, were, well, Thessalonica was a major Greek city, it could be, um, and it would make sense for Paul to use his life as an example of demonstrating the value of a hard day's work, because most of the Greeks didn't value that. Paul was willing to sacrifice his authority as an apostle to serve as a better example to those in Thessalonica, so that he can say to them, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow my example that I left for you. Work hard. Don't mooch off of other people. Be a blessing, not a burden. And hopefully we live our lives in such a way that we can echo Paul's exhortation here, that we can look to others and say, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. Look at my example and how I live my life and pattern your own life after it. The truth of the matter is that whether you like it or not, people are watching and they are learning from the example that you are leaving behind. Moms, dads, sisters, brothers, marines, sailors. What kind of example are you leaving behind for others to follow in? Is it one that will lead others to Christ? I hope and pray so. Listen, if it's not, I would hope that you would repent and you would start living a life that's worthy of the gospel and worthy of the name of Christ. That you wouldn't be ashamed when others follow in your footsteps, but you would be Yeah, 
follow me because I'm headed to Christ. And as you follow me, you're going to be heading right to Christ too. You know, today, if you look at your life and you consider it and you think, maybe I haven't been the best example, let today be a day of repentance. Let today be a day where you say, God, forgive me for not being the kind of example that you've called me to be. And allow today to be a, a fresh start in li- living a life that's worthy of a, those worthy of Christ and worthy of those following after us. Let's continue on. Paul has two more commands for us to note here in this section. Take a look at verses 10 through 12, where Paul gives a command to those who are being disorderly. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. We'll stop right there. Here Paul gives a command towards those who were being negligent in their responsibilities and duties as a believer and a member of the church and the greater society. Now it would seem that perhaps there were some in the church who took Paul's teaching on the imminent return of Christ and thought to themselves, well, if Christ is coming back at any time, why should I worry about the future? Why should I kill myself working every day and providing for my future if Christ is coming back so soon? Then all my labor and efforts they've been, would have been for nothing, right? So I'm just going to quit working and we'll just wait for Jesus to come back. And so they quit their jobs and they started just living off the generosity and support of the other church members. Not only that, but with all their free time, they started meddling in the affairs of everyone else. There's actually a play on words here in verse 11 when Paul mentions how they didn't work at all but were busybodies. The Greek basically accuses them of doing everything everywhere while at the same time doing nothing. They were really busy at doing nothing. Nothing profitable or or edifying at least. Paul commanded the Thessalonians while he was with them, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Again, it's very important that we know what Paul said specifically here. He did not say, if anyone cannot work, but if anyone will not work. There is a difference. Paul is not referring to people who are incapable of work, those who perhaps were crippled or blind or handicapped in some other sort of way that prevented them from being able to work. Paul was speaking to people who would not work, though they had the capability to do so. It was not a matter of ability, but more so a willingness. Those who are not willing to work shall not eat. Paul made it very clear that if someone was capable of work, then they ought to work and provide for their own selves. He commanded here in this letter that those who were acting in this disorderly fashion and not heeding his example, that they were to work in quietness and eat their own bread. Basically, Paul was telling them, Get off your rear end and go get a job, okay? And stop mooching off the kindness and generosity of everyone else. That's kind of how we would say it in today's language. Maybe, maybe a little nicer, but that's kind of what he's saying, okay? We've got one more command that Paul gives. It's found in verse 13. Take a look at it with me. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Real simple here, Paul's final exhortation was for those who were doing well, who were doing good. He encouraged and exhorted them not to grow weary in doing good. It can be wearisome to work hard, to do the right thing, and to see others sitting around doing nothing, or to see others who aren't pulling their fair share and and cause us to have to pull more because of their lack. And this can be especially wearisome when we don't see the immediate impact and the benefit that comes from the fruit of our labor, when we don't see the results that we were hoping for right away, we can begin to get weary and wonder if it really is worth it all. And the danger, the danger is that we throw in the towel and we give up prior to experiencing the rewards and the fruits of our labors. You know, Paul shared a similar exhortation to those in Galatia. 
In Galatians chapter 6, he wrote, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is my hope and prayer for us, for so many of you. I know that you are stretched thin that you are pulled in a thousand different directions at times and serving in the church, whether that's our children's ministry, our sound booth, our nursery, hospitality, okay, worship team, really any and all the areas, that it could be difficult. And it could be so tempting to just throw in the towel here at church and feel like it, it simply isn't worth it. Do not give up. Don't lose heart. Don't grow weary you will eventually reap a harvest. You'll see the fruit of your efforts. It may not be this week, okay? Although it, it could be for some of you this week that I've been working on VBS because you're going to see the, the joy in the kids' smiles uh, this week. But it may not be this week. It may not be next week or next month or even next year. In fact, some of us won't see the fruit and rewards from our service until we stand before the Lord in heaven. But I guarantee you, when you are standing there before the Lord receiving your rewards from heaven, that you won't regret your service to the Lord. In fact, the only regret you may have is that you weren't able to do more. And so be encouraged, church family. Okay? Don't give up. Don't grow weary in doing good. God sees your efforts. He sees your labors for him. He will reward you in due season at just the right time. Let's look at our final section for us this morning as we turn to Paul's closing in verses 16 through 18. Read them with me. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is sign, a sign in every epistle. So I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. As Paul closes out his letter, he signs off with his own hand, which was a sign in every epistle that he wrote, a way in which they could test whether a letter was from him or not. Remember, there was some uh, thought that maybe someone had uh, falsified a letter on Paul's behalf and submitted it to the church in Thessalonica saying, oh, you really are living in the day of the Lord. And he said, hey, look, this is how I sign my letters. Okay, You guys should be able to check it and know. And then he lifts them to the Lord and specifically mentions three attributes of God, if you will, he, that he desired for them. Note them quickly with me. Okay, number one, Paul wanted them to have the peace of God. Paul prayed that the Lord of peace himself would give them peace always in every way. No matter what heartaches and situations they encounter, no matter what sort of persecutions and trials that came against them, Paul wanted them all to have the peace of God. This peace of God is the kind of peace that surpasses all understanding and guards our hearts and minds from the attacks of the enemy, from the despair that can come as we fight the good fight of faith. This is the kind of peace that Jesus gives to us. Jesus said in John chapter 14, 27, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus gives to us the kind of peace that is able to overcome a troubled and fearful mind. He doesn't give as the world gives, but he gives in abundance. He satisfies our needs and continually supplies us all of our days. In fact, not only has Jesus given us his peace, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, he himself is our peace. Okay? And so, May we find and know and have the peace of God in our hearts and minds through an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Spend time with your Lord and Savior in prayer and in worship and allow his peace to be yours. Number two, Paul wanted them to have the presence of God. Paul prayed that the Lord would be with them all, even those who were being unruly and disorderly. Paul's desire is that all of them would know and understand that the Lord was with them. Now, this wasn't something new 
right? And this is a truth that we all know. God's presence is always with us. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times, right? Uh, But Hebrews 13 verse 5 tells us that he never leaves us nor forsakes us. And, And I think Paul knew that, and I think the church in Thessalonica knew that. But I think Paul's prayer here is that the Thessalonians would be mindful of his presence with them. You know, sometimes we can know factually that God's with us, but we don't experience that. We don't feel like he's with us sometimes. And and this prayer for the church in Thessalonica is that they would know experientially, that they would know God's presence with them. And he would know, they would know and sense that he's with them as they go through various persecutions, as they deal with these church issues, church discipline that's going to have to take place, as they continue to spread the gospel, and as they continue to serve God faithfully, that they would know and sense God's presence with them. And then number three, Paul wanted them to have the grace of God. Paul, as he often does, he began and ended his letter with grace. And I love that Paul does that. For our faith is founded upon the grace of God, and it is sustained by the grace of God, and it will be accomplished or completed by the grace of God. It is all about God's grace. How will these Thessalonians be able to do all the things that Paul laid out for them, these final exhortations? It will be by the grace of God. And the same is true for us. We will only be able to do what God has called us to do by the grace of God working in us and through us. And so may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. This opportunity that we've had to to go through the book of 2 Thessalonians and 1 Thessalonians to be encouraged and enriched uh, by it. We thank you that your word uh, goes forth in power, Lord, and that it accomplishes that which you send it forth to do. And so, Lord, we just uh, thank you for your word. Lord, I do pray um, that, just like Paul prayed, I pray that we would know and understand and have the peace of God. Lord, that we would know and understand your presence with us, Lord. And Lord, that we would know and understand the grace of God. And Lord, that we would have your grace just lavished upon us once again this morning. Lord, may we be mindful that it is by your grace and your grace alone that we're able to do anything. And so, Lord, it is your grace that loved us, Lord, and and because you loved us, we can now love you, Lord, and we want to do the things that you've called us to do in love. We want to do them according to your Spirit's leading and guiding. So, Lord, we ask that you would do that work of grace upon us, uh, all those things that are needed. By your grace, we look to you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.